Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside of the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, covering the North every day with an email newsletter that drops in your inbox just before lunchtime and brings you up to date with the latest political news from our region. All you need to do to sign up is visit www.thenorvenagenda.co.uk. It's been a brutal week for Boris Johnson as he faces growing dissent from within his own party and his hopes of seeing the Conservatives into the next election looking increasingly slim. Our Westminster editor, Dan O'Donoghue, has been speaking to Blackpool South MP Scott Benton, one of the 2019 intake of Northern MPs, about the Prime Minister's levelling up vision and what he makes of the bombshell defection of Bury South MP Christian Wakeford to Labour. I respect Christian and every MP um, has a decision to make when it comes to Boris's future. I think Christian has made a ridiculous decision and has turned his back on the 22,000 voters of Bury South who voted Conservative at the next general election. I very strongly suspect that they will not thank him for making that decision to cross the floor. And we'll be hearing from Lucy Ashton, the local democracy reporter for Sheffield, about the five things you need to know about politics right now in the Steel City. So every year the council has to reveal uh, any data breaches and normally it's quite low level things. It's a human error where an officer has sent an email to the wrong person or a letter's gone to the wrong address. Um, So it is quite low level, apart from this year where 8.6 million car registration number plates were shared on the internet. But first, let's talk culture and specifically Northern culture. It's a week where the future of the BBC, one of the biggest contributors to national culture, is under discussion as the government looks at changing the way the corporation is funded. But in a new report, our region's MPs, Metro Mayors, local authority and cultural leaders have come together to make the case for Northern culture. The Northern Culture All-Party Parliamentary Group's Leveling Up Inquiry has, over the last few months, gathered a significant body of evidence on what the North needs to rebuild, rebalance and recover after the pandemic. Its 10-point action plan makes it clear that Northern culture must be embedded and not ignored in the government's Leveling Up white paper, which we hope will come out next month. But how should this be done? Let's speak to Professor Katie Shaw, a professor of contemporary writing at Northumbria University, who has been one of the driving forces behind this report. Katie, welcome. Hi there, how are you doing? Good, very good, thank you. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating report. Can you just sort of give me the the main thrust of sort of the main points that people will want to know about it? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, we're always hearing about the value of the North in terms of things like trains and technology or business and brokerage. But for the first time, this report really clearly articulates and evidences how culture is the quickest and also the most underused lever for levelling up the North today. As you say, we've heard from evidence from hundreds and hundreds of cultural organisations and individuals from across the North of England over the last 12 months. And that's meant listening to a really diverse range of voices and ideas. The strength of our North today really lies in this diversity. And as a result of that, we've made sure we've heard from the full wealth of our cultural sector, everybody from, you know, the comedians to the ballet dancers, the fine artists to the producers, um, the, you know, the audiences, all the way through to the writers. 
And as a result, the inquiry report is really trying to tell new stories about the future of the North and culture. We've seen in the pandemic how vital culture has been to people's well-being um, and to communication and to our senses of self, but also to our economy. And the government has made real moves to try and protect the cultural and creative industries over the last um, 18 months. But now we're in a position where most of our cultural organisations are stable and they're trying to look ahead to think about how they can not just survive but thrive in the years ahead. And the report shows how Northern culture in particular is very well placed to start delivering to a lot of our post-COVID agendas, things like net zero and climate change, domestic and international tourism, hospitality, retail and high street regeneration, and also digital integration. So we're really positioning this report as evidence that now is the best time to start thinking about a new place-based recovery strategy, one that can mobilise culture in terms of co-creation and collaboration to try and reframe the North today as a site of creative production that's fit for the 21st century. I was particularly interested in the line in the report that Northern culture can play a key role in delivering post-COVID priorities to level up, uh, including net zero and climate change, domestic and international tourism, retail and hospitality, high street regeneration and digital integration. That feels like a lot of burden to put on the shoulders of of Northern culture. Can it really do all these these things or all these different aspects of the levelling up agenda? Well, I guess it's how you approach it, right? For us, it's not a burden, it's a massive opportunity. And what's really become apparent over the last 12 months is the huge opportunity post-COVID for Northern culture, because a lot of these things lies the skills agenda, right? And Northern culture is really well-placed to deliver a future skills agenda that creates the capacity to not only train, but to retain the creative talent in the North, and then to retrain it and help people in um, post-compulsory and further education in the future. What the report identifies in terms of skills is a real need for a Great North Skills Survey. So we need to know where the deficits and the gaps are today, but we also need to know where our real strengths are when it comes to education. And the skills need to make our workforce resilient for what is going to be the new normal. And with things like net zero, Northern culture is well placed to deliver the sense of how we can repurpose culture for the green agenda. Many of our heritage sites and our cultural buildings are necessarily very old. So we need to think about how we can use them as case studies to green their footprint and reduce their carbon emissions. Um, And also to think about the way in which culture can help us educate the next generation about things like net zero and achieving those things and engaging communities in part of that pathway. And that links very much for us into the wellbeing agenda. You know, we've all relied on culture and cultural binges during the pandemic to get us through, but we need to better understand the well-being value of culture and what this means for capturing the impact of its economic performance and also its impact on things like social cohesion and mental health so we can better deliver public health targets. And in regard to things like high street and retail, well, we've also seen in the last 18 months how culture can move in to repurpose some of these dormant high street spaces post-pandemic. These are real opportunities for things like productivity and employment and retraining. And in relation to tourism, the report captures a real cross-sector desire to see the North rebranded with a new narrative, one that articulates the North as a really dynamic and creative site and creates kind of a paradigm shift in its profile and identity. You know, we've seen the North as inventing the world historically, and the North can also invent the future for the UK too. Now, I see in terms of politicians who have been involved in the report, who have endorsed it, you've got, uh, you know, Labour, Metro mayors, but some Conservatives as well, like James Daly. I mean, was it it easy to achieve cross-party 
consensus on a topic like this at a time where cross-party consensus is perhaps quite hard to come by in other areas? I mean, I can honestly say I was surprised by how much so it was. I mean, we were really blessed having James and Julie uh, co-chair the APPG. And also just by the sheer range of people who stepped forward to give evidence, the MPs and the peers um, and the political figures. And it became very apparent early on that the real power of the report lies lies in its cross-party consensus and that support and that the recommendations have been forged from the wealth of that evidence because the evidence was given cross-party. So the groups that have rallied have rallied because they share ultimately the same concerns, concerns about things like representation and access and diversity and inclusion. So it's been a real exercise in showing how a common cause could help maybe bridge some of these divides. But also, of course, there's going to be challenges about things like history of austerity, about language like levelling up. But ultimately, post-COVID, I think this has really shown the way in which people can rally to a sense of, yeah, consensus and really wanting to make a change. And there seems to be a huge, huge desire now to see to see change happening and see that levelling up agenda become, yeah, more than just rhetoric. Obviously, you know, the people who've written this report, all the politicians we've just been talking about, have a clear sense of the importance of culture. What sense do you get about the importance that the current government places on culture and sort of how receptive they might be to your to your ideas? I think the government recognises the value of culture now more than it did previously. I mean, it's easy to forget that our culture and our creative industries make a greater contribution to the UK economy than they do to any comparable nation. Um, And as people like the Arts and Humanities Research Council um, always remind us, the creative and cultural industries in the UK are larger in terms of GDBA than things like life sciences, automotive, aerospace, oil and gas combined. They're hugely significant to the economy and as an employer. And also really important that I think we can forget things like the value of the BBC and the British Council to our soft power as a nation. You know, our soft power is incredibly important in advocating British values and also things like tourism um, and us as a nation to the rest of the world. And the Cultural Recovery Fund during the pandemic and the government furlough scheme were the best in the world for culture and a a signal really of how important government felt it was to keep those things alive and dynamic for after the pandemic period. But culture can't just be what's been called kind of a hanging basket to the levelling up agenda, you know, some pretty window dressing. It has to be with substance. It has to be with strategy. And I think Michael Gove has demanded in some of his speeches about levelling up this need for really bold policy proposals. And we really hope that our inquiry shows how you can offer those policy proposals and how culture is uniquely positioned to work across policy agendas, agendas relating to things like digitisation and decentralisation, decarbonisation, but also how it speaks directly to what Gove calls these four principles of levelling up, which, if we remind ourselves, are enhancing local leadership raising living standards, improving public services, and generating pride in place. Now, culture is really well positioned post-COVID to deliver to all of these things. And a recognition of the evidence in this report by central government is really now needed because the responses that have been articulated from the evidence show that we don't have time to lose. But more importantly, our government don't have time to lose either right now. If levelling up is going to move away from just being a metaphor into being meaningful, the government have lost three years in cycle because of the pandemic. And now we have a short time between 22 and the next election. 
They need to generate these kind of point to projects where they can get ministers into the regions and point to the differences they've made to people's communities and their lives. And culture is really well placed to lever to do this. So it's a 10 point plan that you've come up with. And But if there's you know one thing that you could action right now or hope the government could action that could start this process of leveraging the culture of the North as a social, economic and political asset, what, what would it be? Is this one, one thing that you really hope could happen quite soon? I think if we had to pick just one thing, for me, it would be more devolution. This would really meaningfully benefit arts, culture, heritage in a post-COVID context. Um, The mayoral model and the combined authority model is a very effective way of delivering funding, of delivering advocacy and connectivity for the cultural sector. I mean, it's easy to forget this, but mayors are really punching above their weight in terms of the very limited resources and powers that are currently afforded to them by central government. And by giving mayors and combined authorities more power, and actually by broadening devolution out to more areas, we could catalyse the changes and the successes that we've already made to date. And what the inquiry evidence is showing us is that by devolving further funding and power and decision-making to the North, we can increase engagement and also ownership of culture by the people, for the people. And in doing so, we can hopefully ensure that culture is by all, for all going forwards. Professor Katie Shaw, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rob. As ever, it's been a quiet week in Westminster. We've got rebellions, defections, a change of COVID rules, and much more in between. We're lucky enough to be joined by Blackpool South MP Scott Benton, who will digest all the latest comings and goings with us. Uh, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Perhaps uh, if we could start with the rebellion, which has been dubbed the pork pie plot on account of one of the ringleaders being from Melton Mowbray, apparently. What do you make of the actions of your fellow 2019 Tories, Scott? Well, I'm I'm disappointed. Um, The current situation is we have a prime minister who commands a huge majority in the House of Commons. He's got an ambitious domestic agenda once COVID um, starts to elapse. And we really do need to maintain the front foot and speak to the public about the issues which they are interested in, which is levelling up between the North and the South. The huge investment programme we have in public services, in schools and in hospitals. And the fact that this country has a jobs miracle at the moment. The economy is the fastest growing economy in the G7. There's over a million job vacancies at present as well, which is quite remarkable given the last two years and the fact that the economy has been disrupted through COVID. So discussions I have with colleagues are, come on, let's look at the wider picture here. And Boris Johnson is the man to take us forward. He can still command huge respect in the public. And I'm sure if we stay with Boris, we'll be in a good position to win the next general election. Obviously, I can't speak for all colleagues, but the vast majority of Conservative MPs, I can assure you, are certainly of the same mindset and appreciate that there have been mistakes made in number 10. Boris has apologised for those, but now is the time to draw a line under this saga and move on as we emerge from the Plan B restrictions being rescinded from next week. So I take it from that, it's pretty fair to say that you believe your now former colleague, uh, Berry South MP Christian Wakeford, was mistaken in his analysis and his decision to join the Labour benches today. Well, absolutely. And funnily enough, I've just been reading some media articles of um, language Christian used towards the Labour Party only several months ago, in which he described them in less than um, 
less than pleasurable and pleasant terms, I, I think it would be fair to say. So I respect Christian and every MP um, has a decision to make when it comes to Boris's future. I think Christian has made a ridiculous decision and he's turned his back on the 22,000 voters of Berry South who voted Conservative at the next general election. I very strongly suspect that they will not thank him for making that decision to cross the floor. Um, what I would like to see going forward is the government really cracking on now and getting back to our positive domestic agenda of stabilising the economy and unprecedented investment in infrastructure and public services in the north. And those are discussions I was having with Christian only a few weeks ago, and he was a very much of a mindset. So disappointed by his decision, and I suspect it's one he will um, come to regret in due course. A lot's been put on this uh, internal inquiry, the Sue Gray investigation into uh, what's happened in the what what has or hasn't happened in the number ten garden and, and basement and various other things? Do you worry that if this report doesn't exonerate the prime minister, there may be more defections to Labour or perhaps more letters going into the nineteen twenty two committee? Um, well, I'm ninety nine point nine nine percent sure we won't see any more defections to Labour. I mean, events um, like somebody crossing the floor uh, happen once every Parliament or so. I think as the first Conservative MP to switch to Labour for at least five years. Um, is my understanding. Not even at the height of Brexit did we see Conservative MPs crossing the floor to the Labour Party. So we certainly won't see that um, sorry episode repeated. In terms of colleagues sending letters um, to the chairman of the 1922 Backbench Committee, obviously Westminster is afoot with journalists, MPs gossiping in corridors and speculating upon what may happen over the coming weeks. Clearly, we do have to wait to see what Sue Gray's report says, and I think that will outline um, the timetable and some of the poor decisions which have potentially been made by civil servants inside Number 10. From my point of view, all we can do at the moment is wait for that report. But having spoken to the Prime Minister personally and heard his assurances on the floor of the House, um, I think we have to take those at face value at the moment. And he's been quite clear that he hasn't broken any restrictions himself. There may have been some mistakes made in number 10, and he's apologised for those. And I think we now have to move on as a country also looks to move on now the restrictions are ending from next week. You as a constituent MP must have, as many MPs have, had letters and emails from constituents who have been frustrated and angry, obviously seeing some of the reports over the last couple of weeks. Do you think constituents need to move on as well and accept uh, the Prime Minister's explanation? Well, my mailbag has been quite um, balanced, actually. I've had several hundred um, constituents email in suggesting um, the Prime Minister's position is untenable. However, I've also had over 100 emails suggesting that Boris Johnson is the person best placed to continue as Prime Minister and to take this country forward. So not only in Blackpool, but across the northwest and the whole country, there's a, 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 wide ref, a wide range of different opinions on what has gone on and what the best way forward for the country is. But I think the best way of keeping this um, situation in perspective is, is this. I canvass every week in my constituency. I go out on a Friday afternoon and a Saturday knocking on doors and hearing what people have to say. I went out in the constituency last week doing exactly the same as well. And 99.99% um, of people didn't mention Boris, didn't mention the so-called parties at number 10. They mentioned bread and butter issues which affect people in Blackpool, whether that be the cost of living, whether that be investment in the NHS, 
litter on the streets, speeding cars as well. So I think as a as a country and and uh, uh, sort of media, we really do have to look beyond. Um, the headlines at the moment and think well what actually are people concerned about in the country uh, yes when people see a constant drip 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 in the media of different stories obviously it concerns people but if you peel back the surface and actually ask what people are concerned about or what truly motivates their votes at the next general election i think we'll find it again it says bread and butter issues like the cost of living which people are fixated on at the moment rather than what may or may not have happened at number 10 down the street. Well, you mentioned the cost of living there, and it's, I know it's something that you've kind of campaigned on and brought up in the comments quite a few times. I mean, what do you think the government needs to be doing to address this crisis? Because obviously we've got a hike in energy bills coming down the road, various other pressures on inflation and wages. And what, what kind of targeted policies would you like to see to kind of help alleviate some of the pressure? I think you're quite right. Certainly my constituents face an unprecedented um, cost of living crisis here. The cost of the vast majority of consumer goods and food have increased over the last few months. Um, there's a potential rise in council tax as well coming in for families from April onwards, as well as national insurance and the fuel rises you've just mentioned as well. So potentially people are going to be hundreds of pounds worse off. So I've had discussions with government ministers. I was in a meeting with the Chancellor last week, for example, on this very issue. And it's something the government are very, very keen to address. So on the fuel issue, particularly, I think we can um, expect to see a targeted support package um, going to low income earners over the next few months to help specifically with those expected rises in fuel. What I would like to see is for the 5% VAT on fuel bills to be scrapped, as well as the so-called green levies. If you take both of those two in their entirety, that would save households in, in the region of about £300 per calendar year, which would be a huge help uh, at a time when the household budget is under such pressure. So that's one option. I think that's unlikely to happen, um, but certainly it is uh, an option which a number of Conservative colleagues speaking to the Chancellor and the Treasury about at the moment as well. So I'm sure as the year progresses, we'll not only see additional support in terms of the fuel bills issue, but also more broadly across a range of different cost of living issues. Um, but let's not forget that the government are already doing a huge amount on this already. So we've seen the universal credit taper rate reduced, which is uh, in effect a tax cut worth £1,000 per year to low income families. And also the changes we've already made to the tax system means that average working families are £1,500 every single year better off. So the government's got a track, good track record in this area, but there's a lot more to do if we're going to reassure my constituents that we're on their side and we appreciate the day-to-day -day pressures they are facing. There's been a lot of talk about the levelling up white paper, which is potentially being published towards the end of this month, start of next month. I mean, is there any specific measures you've been pushing for or you would like to see in that white paper that could also go towards helping some of your constituents and maybe alleviating some of these pressures as well? Levelling up is a very interesting topic. And um, I'm afraid if you ask most members of the public what levelling up means, um, they can't quite articulate a response. And in fact, I'm not sure many Conservative MPs can hand on heart tell you what levelling up means either. That's the government's challenge here. So we've probably heard the Prime Minister say levelling up on hundreds, if not thousands of occasions 
since the last general election, but what does this actually mean to the average person on the street in Blackpool or Burnley, for example? Well, now is the time when the government needs to start coming up with answers. So we've got the levelling up um, fund, which a number of towns across the region, such as Burnley and Berry, Christian Wakeford seat, ironically, have already benefited from. Blackpool Council will be submitting another bid to that fund in March as well, and hopefully we'll receive that £20 million, which will go such a long way towards regenerating our town centre as well. Um, but what I sort of see as levelling up really is challenging the fundamental fact that if you live in the southeast, your life chances have traditionally been far better than those of people in the northwest more generally, and specifically towns such as Blackpool. Um, over the, the last few decades or so. So how do we go about turning um, that sort of issue around? Well, it's not just regenerating town centres and the capital expenditure, although that clearly helps, um, but it's about day-to-day -day investment in public services. So, for example, if I were to say that our local NHS in Blackpool and our local schools are now receiving more money than ever before, and we have tailor-made programmes, whether it be public health or educational attainment, to address that gap between the rich and the poor, which has persisted for far, far too long. And that's what I interpret levelling up to mean. And the government are already cracking on to deliver that agenda as well. Um, but clearly people expect to see um, spades in the ground at the next general election. And that's why the government really does need to do far better and more quickly, if I can say as well, at getting money out of the door to communities such as Blackpool so that people can see those positive effects of investment from this government. And obviously we saw, uh, I think it was earlier this week, that for the first time since, I think, 2007, that Blackpool will be playing host to the Tory Spring Conference in, in March, I believe. So, I mean, do you think that will be a perfect opportunity to press some of the needs of Blackpool and, and what areas need levelling up? And, and also, perhaps, what will that bring to the town in terms of, in terms of cash value, all those delegates coming to to Blackpool. I, I do. It's a fantastic opportunity to showcase Blackpool um, to government ministers. We'll have the Prime Minister there, we'll have a number of cabinet members there as well, and it will be brilliant to show them the difference in the investment which has already gone into Blackpool over the last few years as well. So the Tory party haven't been there for a conference uh, since the days of opposition and David Cameron in 2007, and so much has changed in the meantime. So I'm looking forward um, to Prime Minister coming up. I've already got loads of different visits planned with him, uh, with people like the Home Secretary, of Transport Secretary, and the Chancellor as well. So it's a really good opportunity to not only showcase everything Blackpool has to offer, but also to demonstrate um, how much more we could achieve if we achieve levelling up monies, if we achieve the investment we want, for example, in the South Fylde line, which I'm, I'm speaking to the Transport Secretary about most weeks. So um, those are different opportunities for, for Blackpool and why it's so good to host a party in March. In terms of the, the short-term benefit, uh, we're probably looking at an uptick in the economy of about £3 million, which will obviously go to local hoteliers, publicans, restaurant owners, and so forth as well. So uh, the Blackpool economy will definitely, uh, will definitely benefit, but more politically as well, I think it's quite acute going to Blackpool because it demonstrates that we can't take voters in places uh, like the Red Wall and Blackpool South for granted, and that the Prime Minister's coming here with a serious agenda 
to not only demonstrate what the government is doing, but to listen to local people about their concerns as well. And finally, um, I believe you've been pressing for a memorial in Blackpool for Gunnar Lee Thornton, who sadly lost his life during his second tour of Iraq. I just wondered if you could explain to our listeners how the campaign's going and, and what seems to be the obstacle to this memorial. Thank you. That's a, a brilliant question. Um, in 2006, Gunnar Lee Thornton sadly lost his life during his second tour of Iraq. Uh, and I feel very strongly that people who do lose their life in service of our nation, whether that be members of our brilliant armed forces or indeed police officers, should be um, remembered uh, in, in the, the most fitting possible way. I'm very disappointed that for a number of years, um, Lee's mother, Karen, has asked the council for a fitting tribute. For example, um, maybe the naming of a local road after Lee, the naming of a council building or something similar like that, just to remember his sacrifice. Um, my understanding is Lee's mum hasn't received a response from the council in relation to those inquiries, which is very disappointing. I've now taken up the baton on behalf of her. So we've set up a local petition, which has nearly a thousand signatures. And I've also spoken to the council about this to see if it's something they would take forward. Um, disappointingly, the council haven't come back to me, um, despite several requests and inquiries over a number of months. And that does raise a number of questions um, regarding the council's performance. If they can't respond to a grieving mother, or a local member of parliament who's trying to take this issue forward, then quite frankly, who are they responding to and about which different issues? So very, very disappointed at Blackpool Council on this issue. Um, but obviously there's time for that to change. And I just hope that they will listen to the petition and the petitioners, those who've taken the time to sign this petition when it is handed into the full council and they can come up with a fitting tribute for Lee which would remember him and his great sacrifice to this country. So the Downing Street party scandal has found its way to Sheffield in the last few days as it emerged that the city council's chief executive had been part of a leaving drinks in her office during lockdown in her previous role as director of the government's COVID task force. Kate Josephs, whose task force was responsible for coordinating the government's response to the pandemic, has said she's truly sorry for gathering with colleagues for alcoholic drinks in her office to mark her leaving the civil service in December 2020. All of which means that Ms Josephs, who took over the City Council's top job last year, faces an uncertain future as we record this podcast. But when she's not apologising for leaving drinks, what are the big issues facing her and Sheffield's political leaders? Let's find out by talking to Lucy Ashton, who is the local democracy reporter for Sheffield. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Rob. Good to talk to you. Nice to have you on the podcast. So you were just saying before we came on air that it's a crazy busy time covering Sheffield Council at the moment. There's tons of stuff going on. So let's crack on with it. But the first thing which I guess listeners might want to know is that Sheffield Council is is going to run or perhaps already is running in a rather different way to other local councils around the north of England after a referendum last year. Can you just explain that situation? That's right, Rob. So a couple of years ago, there was a very much a grassroots campaign 
from a group called It's Our City, who wanted to move from the cabinet system to committees. Now, with a cabinet, you have about 10 senior councillors who tend to make all the decisions. Each one has an individual portfolio, a bit similar to the government's cabinet. They felt that this was quite unfair because there's 84 councillors covering Sheffield. And they felt that unless your local councillor is one of the 10 in the cabinet, there was no chance for other local councillors and members of the public to have much of a say. It ended up going to a referendum, which was held at the same time as May's local elections. And the people of Sheffield voted to go to a committee system. Now, this is a, a it's a huge piece of work. It's it's technically quite difficult to do. And it's going to take at least a year for these new committees uh, to come into force and for the existing cabinet uh, to be dismantled. The cabinet is now called an executive. That's on the way to being phased out. The committees are on the way to being phased in. But obviously, all this is happening during a pandemic. So none of it is very easy. And I guess that We'll soon see, I suppose, whether this new system means that decisions in Sheffield are made in a better way, a more democratic way, I suppose, which is the intention of the the changes. Um, so one of the things that they're thinking about, I guess, is what you described as a battle of the budget supermarkets. Explain what's going on there. So we've got uh, Sheffield Council is wanting to build a Lidl in Handsworth. But two miles away, just over the border, Rotherham Council is hoping to build an Aldi. Now, Sheffield has a site. It's uh, very far along the planning process. The uh, council's due to make a decision shortly. Um, So Sheffield's obviously keen to get the um, boost to the local economy, to bring new jobs, and said we're we're 90% there. Rotherham Council has a new Waverley development. It's hoping to open an Aldi at Waverley, but the plans are still in the very, very early stages. Um, So Rotherham has objected to Sheffield. The, the, The crux of it is, though, is that local residents are fed up of supermarkets full stop. There's local residents say they've got at least four other supermarkets in the area. They don't want any more supermarkets, whether it's Lidl or Aldi. Um, So it will be quite an interesting one. And as as a local reporter, I've noticed over the past year or so, uh, the what I would call the bargain supermarkets are really stealing a march now. Um, this will be, I think, the third Aldi to open in Sheffield um, in the in the area in a, a short space of time. Um, Sheffield's also had another Lidl recently. Um, so we seem to be getting far more Aldi and Lidl planning applications than some of the bigger traditional brands. Maybe they're all attracted by that mysterious uh, middle aisle that all the Audis have where you just get loads of random, random stuff and you don't know what it's going to be from day to day. I'm a big fan of big fan of that. I live in Leeds and in Leeds, uh, in, in North Leeds specifically, there was a big issue with local schools 
being oversubscribed and every year it's uh, you know the issues about whether people can get into certain schools and i see that that is also an issue particularly in the southwest of sheffield so how, how did that come about well me and you are both parents rob and you know how important education and schools are to parents you know it's it becomes such a focal point of your life as a parent uh, across sheffield secondary schools are oversubscribed most of Sheffield this is only going to be an issue for the next couple of years but in southwest Sheffield this is going to be a problem for the next 10 years now it relates back to the birth rate increasing the birth rate has increased by 25% in recent years added to that southwest Sheffield is a very popular area to live So they've got extreme pressure on the secondary schools. The worst case scenario is parents won't be able to get to their secondary school that's in their catchment area, um, which would lead to a lot of upset. It could open the council to a lot of education appeals. They've been in discussion with two of the biggest, most popular schools in southwest Sheffield, Silverdale and King Edbert's been a lot of discussion about whether the two schools can expand, whether they can expand to take more pupils and whether they can physically expand with more buildings, new buildings or extensions. They've now had further discussions with Silverdale about whether the number of pupils there can increase to more than 1,600. These are early discussions. It's obviously going to have a lot of impact for um, current pupils, staff, parents, prospective parents, and also residents living near to the school, because we don't know what this will mean, um, whether the site will expand. So a lot of people are really invested in this story. Uh, another interesting local one is the Sheffield Ski Village, which has a very checkered history. And there's been a, a recent update, hasn't there? What's what's happening with the Sheffield Ski Village? This is another one, Rob, where people are really invested in the ski village in Sheffield. Pe- most people have very happy memories of it. People who used to go there have happy memories. Uh, the ski village closed around 2012 following um, a serious fire and it's remained closed since then. But it's it, it's um, a very distinctive um, place on, on the landscape. It's in the middle of a hill, a very prominent hill in the city, so it's easily seen from around the city. Now, the council um, about three years ago went into an agreement with a company called Extreme and they were going to be a new leisure developer and they were going to revitalise the site and make a new leisure development there. Sheffield Council says that since this agreement over the past two or three years, Extreme hasn't made any progress. Now, they've allowed for COVID and the pandemic The council says that they've repeatedly extended timescales, extended deadlines, but they say Extreme just did not make any progress. So they've now cancelled the arrangement with Extreme. They're now looking at yet another new developer. This time it's a company called Skyline, and they're interested in creating um, a gravity park which would involve uh, zip wires 
and um, sledding feet first down Sheffield Hills. So people really want something to be done with this site. It's it's really derelict. It's suffered um, umpteen uh, arson attacks. It's covered in fly tipping. It, like I say, it's a very focal point on, on a hillside in the city. So everybody just wants something to be done. Um, one of the really big problems is accessing the site because at the moment, you have to go under a railway bridge that's too small for coaches to get under. It's obviously at the top of a hill. It's not a wide access road. It's nowhere near public transport. It's not pleasant as a pedestrian. And obviously, as a pedestrian, you're walking up a great big hill. So this is really a major barrier to, to redeveloping the site, how they can physically get visitors to it. The one thing I, well, one of the many things I know about Sheffield is it's a, a very hilly, hilly city. So I guess if you're going to build, have, have a ski village where people can sledge downhill anywhere, Sheffield would be a good place to, good place to have it. Um, the final story that's got you interested is this massive data breach, which has earned Sheffield Council a uh, reprimand from the Information Commissioner's Office. What happened there? So every year the council has to reveal uh, any data breaches and normally it's quite low level things. It's a human error where an officer has sent an email to the wrong person or a letter's gone to the wrong address. Um, So it is quite low level. Apart from this year where 8.6 million car registration number plates were shared on the internet. Um, Not only the number plates, but also information about dates and times of the vehicles. Now, um, listeners may know the um, automatic number plate recognition system, which is a bit like when you go past a camera and it clicks your number plate. This is where this information was being held on this system. But Sheffield Council inadvertently shared it on the internet um, so all this information was available. Now they've had quite a serious reprimand from the Information Commissioner's Office. Normally the ICO gives a few, gives a bit of advice, recommends a few guidelines but on this occasion because it was such a vast number um, that 8.6 million they, they have been reprimanded and they say they've put um, various systems in place to ensure this won't ever happen again. Um, Just to mention one other interesting one, which is a a lower level one, but one of the data breaches involved um, a social worker's bag that was stolen from a car. And that was quite an interesting one. Everything in the bag, she got mobile phone, she got um, paperwork, she got a diary, again, detailing, you know, families, Um, addresses and phone numbers and things like that. Now, there's nothing at all the council could have done to prevent that happening. Um, So there's not a, you know, it is what it is. But it is interesting just hearing about some of these data breaches and how they might have affected people. Yeah, it's uh, 8.5 million. That is a hell of a a lot of number plates to uh, inadvertently share on the internet that's quite an extraordinary breach isn't it and well lucy thank you thank you so much and i know that you discuss these issues and others on your own
Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Yes, um, the four South Yorkshire local democracy reporters, we do a monthly podcast called Town Hall uh, Tattle, where we do a monthly roundup of everything that's been happening in Sheffield, Rotherham, Barnsley and Doncaster. And that's available on Spotify and on Anchor. Wonderful stuff. Well, Lucy Ashton, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. See you next week.